0: Our scripture reading for today um, can be found on page 943 in the Black Bibles in front of you. It's Romans chapter 7, verse 14 through chapter 8, verse 4. Um, Again, that's found on page 943 in the Black Bibles in front of you. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There is therefore no now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. The Word of the Lord.
1: All right, good morning, guys. Welcome to Trailhead. My name is Steve. I am the lead pastor here, and we're working our way through a sermon series called The Invitation, where we're looking at how grace meets us. This morning, we're going to be looking at how grace meets us in shame, um, a hard topic, but a necessary one. Next week, we'll be taking a look at how grace meets us in sorrow, both fairly heavy, but but both very important topics. Um, in three weeks, well, two weeks from now, we're going to be launching a new sermon, sermon series on March 2nd. You guys got a, uh, a postcard when you came in, right? Is that correct? Hopefully, you did. If not, you'll get it on the way out, right? Um, I'm assigning that to somebody. I don't know who. Um, if you didn't get one, grab to Connection Point if you don't get it. Here's the thing. We want you to hang it on your fridge. We want you to give it to your friends. We're starting a new sermon series going through the book of Galatians. The book of Galatians is like a, a, an MMA cage fight. I mean, it is like a throwdown. Paul is coming ready to fight because here's the thing. There is a, 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 a competition, a fight for what ideas are going to control our behavior, influence our thinking, shape our values. Um, those ideas shape what we think about God and what we think about ourselves, two of the most important things um, that ultimately guide the way we go through life. And so in Galatians, he tells us about a God who is fighting for our freedom and how we can fight with that God to experience that freedom. Um, It's going to be a great message series for um, people that honestly are asking a lot of questions because we're going to be looking at big questions like, who is Jesus and, and what is the gospel? What is this good news that we talk about? Um, even if it's true, what does it matter? How does it impact my life on a daily and uh, real basis? So I'm going to encourage you, if you have some neighbors, if you have some friends that um, are going to church or or maybe would benefit um, from hearing about it, <clears throat> use this as an opportunity. to Just simply invite them out on March 2nd for the beginning of this sermon series, Fighting for Freedom. All right, today we're going to be talking about a hard topic. We're going to be talking um, about shame and specifically Um, how God invites us out of shame and to his table of grace um, to stop hiding in shame and to hide instead in his story of grace. Um, To kind of launch us off, I want to share with you a story of grace. So go ahead and play the video.
2: Hi, I'm Mary.
3: And my name is Mud. (laughs) If I don't say the right thing, I know it's going to be Mud. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Tell him what your name is. Okay. My name is Bill.
2: <laughs> I got started in the prisons um, basically through my job when I worked at the domestic violence shelter. I tell my story of childhood, and I was a physically and sexually abused child by adopted parents and I was sold for money. A prisoner said one time when I was talking about God, I don't want to hear about God because I don't believe there is a God. And if there was a God, why did he let happen to you? What happened? And I had to pray about that for a long time. And finally, God gave me the answer that uh, I was there all along, Mary. I was there that first night when you were three years old. And I heard you crying. And I saw what he was doing. And I want you to know that I was so angry, I wanted to kill him. And I could have. I could have brought my 10,000 angels, and I could have killed him. But, Mary, I looked into your future, and I realized I had a plan for you. So I decided that if I stayed in that room every night with you, that he could never totally destroy you, because I wouldn't let him. And at some point, you would have a job to do.
3: Everybody wants to live on the mountaintop all the time. And, uh, but it's in the valley where you do your growing. That's where the most fertile soil is. So sometimes it's necessary that you go through a valley in order to to uh, to grow and mature and uh, and I think Mary and I both have found that out over the years so oftentimes it seems like uh, if your your prayers are just bouncing off the ceiling but uh, when in back they're not you know uh, we've learned I've learned especially and in, uh, in retrospect you can look back and and uh, and see where the hand of the Lord has been working all the time, even though uh, during the issues, why it's kind of hard to understand that or see that.
2: I can think of very few times in my life that God has done things the way I have told him to do them. And many times I've even said, but that's not what I asked for. But thank goodness I didn't get what I asked for. I wouldn't change a bit of it because... uh, I am not a victim, I am a survivor, I'm a Christian, and I'm someone that God has taken. I didn't volunteer for that job, but he has taken and made something that was meant to be very, very horrible, and turned it around and used it for good. So his grace is sufficient. Uh, No matter what I've gone through, he's almost always settled it in a different fashion.
1: Mary's story is a powerful story of grace meeting her in in suffering, and and, uh, she does an incredibly brave thing. She travels to prisons, and she sits down with convicts and and inmates, and you can see she's not exactly uh, the most intimidating, um, strong-looking person, Um, but she brings uh, a, a gravity and a power, and she has powerful stories of grown men breaking down and weeping. As she shares her story, as she talks about how grace has met her in her suffering, how grace has taken her story and redefined it as a story of joy and victory and dignity, even though they were cruel, abusive, and evil men who wanted to turn that story into a story of shame and degradation. It's a powerful story of grace today. Not just grace in her past, but how that grace continues to have ripple effects today, continuing to invite others into an experience of grace. And so this morning, what I'd like to do is talk a little bit about the principles that freed Mary, the principles that, that Mary is sharing with others, the principles of the gospel that honestly um, meet us in the places that often it's most difficult to be met. Here's the thing. We all have things we want to keep hidden. We all do. We all have things that we don't want others to see. We all have things that we don't want to see ourselves. I mean, honestly, there there are things that we just simply want to ignore and pretend aren't there, whether they are experiences, actions we've done, actions that have been done to us, patterns of behavior that are current in our lives, or uh, persistent weaknesses that we wish weren't there. We all have things that we would love to keep hidden from ourselves, and from others. And the power that compels us to hide those things is called shame. Sometimes the shame comes from things we've done. Sometimes it comes from things that were done to us. But shame ultimately is a powerful force that that compels us to hide. It compels us to obscure and to put out an image that isn't real. Here's the thing, you guys. God has called us to stop hiding in our shame and start hiding in His grace. We're all going to hide in something. And God is calling us to hide not in our shame or from our shame, but in His grace. See, shame is that force that compels you to hide ultimately things about yourself, from yourself, from others. And the experience of shame came very early in the human story. It doesn't take long to see its introduction. If you go back to the beginning of the Bible, our first parents, Adam and Eve, uh, were naked and unashamed. That's exactly how they're described in Genesis 2. So in Genesis 1 and 2, we see our first parents, in a sense, having a human experience devoid of shame. They had nothing to hide. They had no reason to hide. There was no doubt. There was no shame. There was no guilt. It was um, a condition of peace and joy. Until Genesis chapter 3, where they rebelled against God, where they rejected God as center and said to God, you will not be our glory, we will be our own glory. You will not be our God, we will be our own gods. Immediately, they experience shame. And we see that um, powerfully in the story itself as they go to hide themselves, right? We think of that as the funny part of the children's story. You know, they go grab fig leaves and cover up the, uh, the unmentionables, right? Um, what's really going on there? Is, is, is it because of their physical nakedness? Was, was that actually a point of shame? No, that's not the point of the story at all. The point of the story is, is that suddenly they realized that they were vulnerable, that they had something to hide, that they had a reason to try to protect themselves because they were no longer protected. So they hid themselves behind fig leaves, they hid their identities behind bushes, they darted away from who they were to hide because they feared rejection, they feared condemnation, they knew that they deserved something, and they were utterly afraid of actually experiencing what they deserved. They were terrified of being exposed in their nakedness, exposed in their guilt, exposed in their shame, because then they would be rejected. They wouldn't experience love. They wouldn't experience intimacy. Their worst fear would be confirmed, a message that says very simply, you are without worth. You have no value so they hid. They hid to trying to find worth and dignity in their hiding. To be protected from rejection, they hid in the bushes, and their children have been hiding ever since, Uh, and that includes us. Now, we're not hiding behind fig leaves, um, but what we're hiding behind isn't that far off, right? I mean, honestly, how many of us pick our clothing to hide, (laughs) We, we pick clothing that, re, that, that both reveals and hides, right? We watch what not to wear to figure out how to uh, accentuate the positives and hide the negatives, right? We, we, uh, we want to put out an image. We, we hide. We hide behind our clothing. We hide behind our records. We hide behind everything. Honestly, we're incredibly adept hiders. We're really good at it, right? Adam and Eve just kind of improvised on the moment and dove into a bush. We've had a lot of time to think about how to hide since then, right? The class clown hides behind his humor. The businessman hides behind his success. The honor student hides behind his good grades. The critic hides behind his ability to find flaws in everyone else's words or behavior or thinking. The fitness buff hides behind his six-pack The mother hides behind the success of her children. We find something that we perceive as a strength, and we hide our weakness behind it. We find something that we think earns us dignity, that will merit for us love and acceptance, and we hide those things that we are desperately afraid will bring us rejection and shame behind those things. See, when we feel shame, we feel naked and exposed, and we can't stand that. So we look for something to clothe us, to hide us. The Apostle Paul in this passage uh, reveals to us, gives us a glimpse into his hiding. Romans 7 and 8 are an incredibly powerful passage where where Paul um, gives us an insight into not just a deep theological truth, but into his deep personal experience. Romans chapter 7 uses the pronoun I more than anyone else in the rest of the book. It is is him basically giving a testimony, a word, a story of how grace has met him in his weakness and what that experience of weakness, that experience of shame was like. Paul hid behind his religious performance. Paul was a driven, success-oriented guy. His business was religion. It could have been anything. Honestly, I think Paul would have been the kind of guy that succeeded at whatever he put his hand to, whether it was making money or or whatever it was, his was making religious righteousness. That was his business, and he was very good at it. He was trained by the best scholars. He was well-learned. He was an expert in the law, and he was driven by religious self-control. In fact, he was considered a Pharisee of the Pharisees, which meant that he was in the inner circle of the inner circle. He was at the top of his trade, right? He had the, the employee of the month parking lot, uh, parking spot right by the door. His picture was on the wall. When people thought of Pharisees, they thought of this elite group of people. And when they thought of Pharisees, the face that came to mind was Paul. Paul was at the top of his trade. Incredibly self-controlled, incredibly um, zealous, in his religion. Yet, behind the scenes, (laughs) Paul was plagued by a sense of failure. Behind the success was this haunting sense that he wasn't everything he was pretending to be. He knew things about himself that no one else knew. And as an unbeliever, his solution to that was to work harder. His solution to that nagging sense of failure was simply to succeed more. He would would apply himself more diligently. He would condemn others more vehemently. He would raise himself up and tear others down to try to seek to establish himself, to silence that voice in the background that simply said, you don't measure up. You are not worthwhile you are not significant. You have no value. And of course we know what that does and we've all been on this ride, right? This is the the roller coaster. You know what I'm talking about? The roller coaster of pride? When you're doing your best to hide behind your performance, behind your appearance, behind your success, whatever it is, whatever is your spiritual resume, whatever it is that you like to send out to the world, your best side, to try and get to control how people perceive you, right? Whatever that is, when you feel really good about yourself, you're at the top of the roller coaster looking down on everybody around you. That's a nice place to be. (laughs) It's always nice to be looking down on others. You feel superior, you feel strong, you feel good, right? You're the thinnest person in the room. You're the most attractive person in the room. You're the most successful person in the room. You are the most religious person in the room. Whatever it is that you hide behind, when that facade feels strong, you feel great until somebody comes along and their weakness is stronger than your strength. That's a humbling moment, a very unpleasant moment. When I was in high school, I used to love to skateboard. That was, um, I was... Highly dysfunctional in a lot of ways, and we had moved a lot. We moved to a new area in San Diego. I didn't have a lot of friends. um, Lost interest in team sports. Wasn't finding the joy in it. Turned to skateboarding. Found that I really enjoyed it. I wasn't incredibly technical. It wasn't like I had this incredible technical skill, but I was super aggressive, and so I could like out aggressive anybody around me. And 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 so we would have this ramp set up in this parking lot, and I I had the skateboard, and I had the right shoes, right? I had the Vans and uh, and I had the right clothing, which meant that it came from goodwill, right? It was baggy and torn up and nasty looking, but I was it, man. I was the skater. I wasn't a poser. I was a real thing, and, and I carried that skateboard with me everywhere, and I loved that thing. And We'd go off this ramp, and I would go higher, and I would go farther, and I would wipe out, and I would bleed more than anybody, and it was awesome, right? And And one day, I'm there, and I'm showing off, and I'm doing all this stuff, and there's a guy standing on the curb, and his I don't know, his umbros and his running shoes. I'm like, look at you, Mr. Athlete. I'm over here bleeding, right? I am superior to you. And he's like, hey, man, can I, can I try that? I'm like, sure. You know, flipping my skateboard. He gets on. He moves around a little bit. And I'm like, oh, he's got a little bit of balance. And pretty soon, he's like going back and forth. And, 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 and then he hits the ramp, and he pulls a 360 and lands it. I'm like, dude, you're not even wearing the right shoes, You idiot. You know what I'm saying? Like when someone else's weakness shows up your strength, you suddenly have nothing to hide behind. In that moment, you're plunged from the top of the roller coaster to the bottom. When you're plunged to the bottom of the roller coaster, all you have is self-loathing. All you have is shame. When all you see is your failure, all you see is your weakness, all you see is how you don't measure up. That's a horrible place to be. You feel inferior to everyone, you feel worthless. See, that's the roller coaster of pride. We're constantly fighting to get to the back of the ro- to the top of the roller coaster. The problem with pride is you can never stay at the top of the roller coaster because it's not real strength. It's an illusion. It's not real protection. It's an illusion, and it betrays you. See Paul as an unbeliever rode that roller coaster. And people paid the price because when he was at the top of the roller coaster, he became violent. He violently persecuted the early church. He put people out of their homes. He delivered people to death. When Paul became a believer, it didn't necessarily take his struggle away. It simply shifted his struggle from trying to obey the law to establish his righteousness to trying to love God for his righteousness. And it wasn't going a whole lot better. Now, I'm not going to unpack all of Romans 7. That's at a future time. We'll, we'll do a whole sermon series through this, and it'll be awesome. Um, but you can read through that and, and, and get a glimpse into really Paul's internal struggle through this process. I just want to take a look at verses 21 through 24 and, and just kind of get a glimpse into how Paul describes his own struggle. He says, so I find to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. As a believer, I delight in the Word of God. I delight in who God is and who He calls me to be. And I hear all these great things. And there is within me something that delights in this this promise of a new life. But I see, in verse 23, I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Now, listen to verse 24 and just listen to his heart. Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from the body of this death? You ever been to that place? Where you are just sick of your weakness. You're sick of your pride. You're sick of your pretending. You're sick of your hiding. You're sick of your weakness. You're sick of of clinging to these hopes of something better only to have those hopes dashed on the rocks of your own weakness you guys here's the thing the greatest cost of shame catch this the greatest cost of shame when you experience shame the greatest cost is your integrity and by integrity, I don't mean honesty. That's part of it, but that's not the whole. When we talk about integrity a lot of times today. You know, it's like put people on their mission statements and their businesses. You know, one of our values is integrity. And what we mean by that is we are honest. The word integrity is a much richer, more complex word than simply honesty. It means wholeness. It means that there is a wholeness and an honesty to the entire structure. Right? When a ship's hull has integrity, it has strength. When a ship's hull has integrity, It can cut through the water. It can withstand the pressures. There's a wholeness. There's a strength. Shame robs us of integrity, of wholeness, of balance in our lives. It it robs us of joy and of strength. Shame puts us in that place where all we see are the cracks. And as we dwell there, honestly, we see death. It's an incredibly difficult place to be, but I want you to realize that this is, in fact, the normal Christian experience. I, I, I think that we often oversell hope—not the power of hope, but hope itself. Like, as soon as you believe the gospel, you're suddenly supposed to no longer struggle with darkness and despair, with sin, with your past, with the things you've done and the things that have been done to you. That—that's not the case. When you believe in Christ, the struggle doesn't simply go away. You have a hope, and there is a power to that hope, and it will deliver you, but there will be a struggle in that deliverance. There will be a painful process to that, and that's what Paul is describing here. It's as if you had the nature of a spider. What do spiders like to do? Some of you are like, I hate spiders. What do they like to do? They like to live in the darkness and feed on death, right? That's what what spiders do. They like to live in the darkness and feed on death. Others of you are like, I love insects. You're, You're miscategorizing them. All right, that's fine. But that's what they do. That's the reality, right? Dark places have spiders. They make webs, kill things, and suck the life out of them, right? That's what they do. Well, that's us and our sin. We love the darkness and we feed on death. We love to hide in the darkness. We like to hide our shame. We like to hide the things that make us, we put out an image of who we're supposed to be, this pretend image of our strength, this pretend image of, of righteousness. righteousness very simply is a word that means the thing that makes us right. So we're putting out this image of the things that make us right, and we're hiding all the things that make us wrong. And the meanwhile, what we really want to do is the freedom to simply feed on our death, to feed on our sin, to feed on the things that, that, that secretly we're looking to to give us life, whatever it might be. But when you become a believer, you don't necessarily lose that nature. That nature is still part of you. The Bible calls it the flesh it's not speaking of your physical body, it's talking about that broken nature, that part of us that was broken by, by the rebellion of Adam and Eve, that part of us that has rejected the authority and the presence of God, that part of us that seeks life where life can't be found. We still have that. But when you become a believer, you're given a new nature. You're given the very righteousness of Christ in the presence of the Holy Spirit. It's as if that, that spider were genetically modified to be combined with a, a butterfly. Think about what a confused creature that would be. Seriously, what conflicting instincts would reside in a creature like that? A desire to go hide in the darkness and go dance in the light, right? To, To feed on death and to feed on nectar, right? There is an internal conflict that comes with being a follower of Christ. And that conflict is our old nature and our new nature. It's the desires of who we were in our death and who Christ is making us to be in our life. Every Christian has felt this tension to pull back, to hide in the darkness, to to push forward and to dance in the light. And so we fight. Now, here's the thing, you guys. We have to fight, and and that's one of the things when we get into Galatians, I'm going to love unpacking this whole idea of why we need to fight with the God who is fighting with us and for us. We need to fight. Because what ends up happening is if we don't continue to fight for the light, we resort instead to hiding in our shame. We, we, we settle for building the facade of a building instead of actually pushing into the building that God has built for us. I mean, imagine it like this, like, like you live in a, in, a, in, a, in a neighborhood that is blighted and everything's falling apart and, and all of a sudden you see your neighbors putting up nice houses and you're looking at yours going, holy cow, mine looks really bad. So what do you do? You build this beautiful facade that from the street looks great. And you go through your door, and you're like, hey, everybody, look at my great house. It's just like yours. And you go, and you shut the door. And when you get through, there's holes in the roof and holes in the window and problems in the foundation, and you're packed there just shivering, exposed, dying. Honestly, that's how a lot of people live their religious life. As long as they can keep the facade up, as long as they can keep pretending like... They're actually moving into life, and this is, everything's joyful, and everything's great. Look from the street, everybody. I'm waving. You go into the darkness and cry. It's going to be a struggle. But see, here's what happens. When you're, when you're behind that facade, when you have the facade up on the street, and you're back there in your dilapidated house that's falling apart, and it's got holes, and is letting in the snow, and, and is freezing you, and you feel exposed, and you know what ends up happening is, is shame comes in and it whispers in your ear. And what it says is everybody else is living in a nice warm house. Look at you, you suck. Everybody else is successful. You're a failure. Everyone else, man, their houses are real. Yours is the only one that's fake. So you know what you need to do? You need to work harder at building a facade. Why don't you put on some lights on the outside? Paint it. Why don't you make it two-story? Make it more impressive to the neighbors. See, shame comes in and says, basically, you can't actually change anything, so you better work harder at improving the appearance. You can't fix it, so you better fake it. Shame comes in and traps you. And this is what happens. Shame does that for a purpose. Shame is, in fact, the spider that gnaws on your soul. It feeds on your integrity. It sucks the life out of you. It takes you and robs you of your integrity, your wholeness, your strength, and your joy. And it leaves you an empty shell with simply a fake front. That's what shame does. So, what is the solution to this? What is the solution to this struggle? What is the solution to our struggle with shame? Well, the solution is, in fact, incredibly counterintuitive. The solution is to stop working. (laughs) Let it fall down. Stop working. Stop pretending. Stop cringing. Stop crawling into your hole. Stop hiding in your performance. Stop hiding in your perceived strengths. Stop putting up a false front. Stop hiding in what you think you can do better than others. Stop hiding in people's perception of you. Stop hiding in in whatever it is that you're turning to to make you right. Stop hiding in that, and instead, hide in grace. Leave your house behind. Let it fall to the ground, and joyfully, humbly walk into the house that God gives you, the house of dignity, the house of strength. Look at the radical transition from verse 24 to 25 in chapter 7. This blows my mind. Verse 24, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Verse 25, (laughs) thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He goes from utter self-condemnation to utter joy and worship in one verse. It's like he's looking in this mirror going, I am horrified by what I see. And then he looks over here and he's like, I am incredibly filled with joy. Thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. See what happened there? Paul shifted from focusing on his proficiency to Christ's. He's saying, I'm no longer going to try to rest in my performance. I'm no longer actually going to try to fix myself. I am not my own self-improvement project. I will not try to be my own Savior. I will not try to build my righteousness. I will, in fact, reject my righteousness because it's not right at all. And I will rest instead in His. I'll rest instead. Paul simply stopped resting in his own work and started resting and giving thanks for God's work in Christ. He stopped working to make himself right and started resting in Christ's work for him. He moved from guilt to gratitude. From shame to celebration. This only makes sense if you understand the gospel. This only makes sense if you, if you understand the gospel. Take a look at Romans 8, verses 1 through 4. There is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and of death. In other words, there's a whole new standard. And the new standard sets you free. It doesn't condemn you. Verse 3, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. In other words, you could never obey the law in the weakness of your flesh, but God did it for you. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, He wasn't a sinner. He looked like one, but He wasn't one. But He came for sin, to die for you. He condemned sin in the flesh by actually dying under the weight of your sin and taking the penalty of it in your place. Verse 4, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, not by our obedience, but by His, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Consider that first verse, there is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. How much condemnation is there for those who are in Christ Jesus? How much? How much? None. None. God looks at you, and there is zero condemnation. God looks at you, and there is zero rejection. God looks at you, and there is zero disappointment. God looks at you, and there is zero, nothing in Him that is held back, waiting for you to earn His approval. He's given it all to you in Christ, because Christ has earned it all. God is fully satisfied with Christ, and you are covered with Christ, so God is fully satisfied with you. There is no condemnation. But Steve, you don't know what I did last night. Are you covered with Christ? There is no condemnation. You don't know what I'm hiding. There is no condemnation in Christ. You don't know what's been done to me. There is no condemnation. Do you hear the invitation to the table of grace? Stop trying to work for what God has freely given you. Stop trying to hide behind your pretend facade to try to earn what Christ has already earned for you and gives you freely in His grace. There's no condemnation because Jesus bore it all, all of it, on our behalf. He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him, 2 Corinthians 5.21. He obeyed the law so that we could become the fulfillment of the law. He took the law's curse so that we could get the law's blessing, not based on our merit, but based on His. He worked, we benefit. The challenge is we need to learn to rest in His work and stop working for His rest. We need to abandon. You know, we talk a lot about repenting of sin, and often what we mean by that is you need to walk away from all those bad things you're doing. And there is a sense in which God calls us to repent of our sin, to learn how to see the lies that drive that behavior and embrace the truth that sets us free. But we're not called simply to repent of our sin. We are called to repent of our righteousness. We are called to repent all the good things we do that we're trying to use to pad our resume. To build our facade, to establish our identity. All the good things we do that we're trying to put out there as a substitute for the work of Christ. Stop pretending, start resting. All right, so, in application, I've got a few points for you. Very simply. First, bottom line is we need to believe in Jesus and keep believing in Jesus. The gospel is the message that has the power to free us. The gospel is the good news that God has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. If it weren't for the work of Christ, we would be trapped in our shame, in our condemnation. We would ultimately stand in our sin, and in our sin, we would be found wanting. We would be found not measuring up. We would be found outside of the love and acceptance of God, the very thing we need to actually experience life. The gospel says, though, that God loved us so much that He sent His Son to identify with our sin, to die in our place, to rise again that we might find new life. The gospel says believe. How do we get covered in the righteousness of Christ? It's not through religious behavior. It's not through self-effort. It's not by religion or creed. It is by simply trusting in the finished work of Christ, believing that He was my substitute. He took my judgment and rose again from my life. I trust in the finished work of Christ. Now, here's the thing. To make any progress in your new faith simply means you need to keep believing the gospel. You don't believe the gospel and then get down to the hard work of becoming religious. You don't believe the gospel and then turn around and say, okay, now I get to build my my house. Now I get to establish my own righteousness. Now I better fix my behavior. Now I better change in all these areas because God forgave me. Now I better work hard. We do work hard, but we don't work hard for our acceptance. We work hard from our acceptance. We don't work to establish our house. We work to experience more of the house that God has given us in Christ. We don't work hard to, to build a facade of righteousness. We work hard to experience the righteousness that God has given us as a gift. It is a fundamentally different activity. We believe the gospel and we keep believing the gospel. But Steve, that verse says, I won't be contemned, but I still feel condemned. I get what the verse says. It says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus, but I feel condemned. Does that mean I'm not a believer? No, what it means is that you're still living in Romans 7 and you need to, by faith, step into Romans 8. You need to stop putting yourself under condemnation. You need to recognize that you don't earn the acceptance of God by your behavior, you don't earn God's love by being religious. You can't. And that's why God sent Jesus. Stop living in Romans 7, trying to do what you can't do, trying to build what you can't build, and instead rest in what God has done for you. By faith, step into the rest of God's accomplishment. When you feel condemned, simply remind yourself that you are not condemned because Christ was condemned for you. When the enemy comes in and attacks you and tells you you have no value and no worth because you aren't loved or you didn't perform or you didn't measure up, remind him that your record isn't that, that's not what you stand on. You stand on Christ's and Christ's record is perfect. You no longer come to the seat of judgment to be measured, you come to the seat of grace to be loved because Christ was judged on your behalf. Think about this. Paul, the one who wrote Romans 7 and 8, was a liar and a murderer. A liar and a murderer. And yet he freely rejoices. Thanks be to God. I am free through Jesus Christ. There is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Grace is free, it is absolute. Stand in it. Secondly, you need to destroy your hiding places. Where are those places you go to hide? What are those righteousnesses that you put out to impress people? What's the facade that you build? Tear it down. This is one of the hardest things we do in our Christian life. You know why? Because as soon as you go to tear it down, pride's going to whisper in the back of your head, but you've worked so hard to build it. (laughs) You've worked so hard to impress people with this. You've worked so hard to make people love you in this way you really going to walk away from that work? You've improved so much. You've become so strong. Pride comes in and simply puffs you up and tries to take you back to the, the top of the roller coaster. Shame comes in and whispers, what'll happen when you're exposed? What'll happen when people really know your weakness? What'll happen when people really know what's going on behind this facade? Pride comes in and reminds you of, of how much you've invested. Shame comes in and reminds you how much you have to fear. If you're exposed, you'll be destroyed. Grace comes in and reminds you that it's Christ's record, not yours, and that you're being invited to the table of grace, not to the throne of judgment. Destroy your hiding places. By faith, tear down your righteousness so that you can rest in Christ's righteousness. Move from working for your worth and start working instead from your gratitude because Christ is your worth. Finally, forgive as you've been forgiven. This is a loaded and complex one and hard to throw in at the very end, but here's the bottom line. This is going to be a really hard step for those of you whose shame comes not from what you've done, but from what has been done to you. You're going to want to accept grace for yourself, but not for those that hurt you. Let me catch this, and I want you to hear this. You are not defined by what has been done to you. You are defined by what Christ has done for you, right? Mary is not a victim. Mary is a daughter of God. Mary is not defined by the abuse or the suffering that was imposed on her by evil men. She is defined by the glory and the beauty and the love and the acceptance that is given to her freely because of the work of Christ. You are not defined by what has been done to you. You're defined by what Christ has done for you. To walk in faith, though, you're going to have to step out of the seat of judgment. That doesn't mean that you forget what's been done to you, you ignore it, you minimize it, or you pretend that it wasn't real, but it does mean you forgive. What does that mean, to forgive? Very simply, let's put it this way, it means you step out of the judgment seat of God. You stop putting a little cage in your heart where you hold that person you resent, you hate that hurts you, and you keep them trapped in your heart because you feel like you have a right to sit in judgment over them. The bottom line is they hurt you, but that's God's seat, not yours. God is the judge. You need to step out of the seat of God's judgment and stand instead in the righteousness of Christ and let God be God. Let God judge. Let God bring righteousness. Because the bottom line is the only person you are enslaving in your heart is not the person who hurt you, but you. The cage you have built for another enslaves you. You're the one tortured by the bitterness, not them. You know why? Because you can't be God. As much as you want to judge them and hold them to account, you can't. You need to let God be God. By faith, step out of the siege of judgment. Let God be God. Trust Him with it. And instead, come to the table of grace. And let God renew you. Let God delight in you. Let God's love pour over you. Let God's love redefine you. So that you can step out in life in integrity, in wholeness, knowing that you are worthwhile, you are valuable, you are loved. Because you are covered in Christ. I'm going to put some questions on the screen, I'll let you pray and do some business with God. I know today's message, honestly, was heavy, and I know that. And I know that for some of you it pushed buttons, you didn't want pushed. (laughs) And I pushed on some doors you don't want to open. I get it. You don't have to trust me, but trust God. Trust the Spirit. If you would like to process this and pray about this with someone, we will have leaders at the back. You don't have to disclose what you don't want to disclose. We're not going to ask prying questions. We would love to pray with you and to pray over you. God's grace can meet you in ways that your righteousness and your bitterness never could. And the only thing required of grace is humility. So humble yourself and be willing to simply ask for someone to pray with you and over you. Our leaders and will be back, be, be available for that. I'm going to put some questions on the screen to, to lead your processing, your praying, and just let God's Spirit speak to you. We're going to share communion in a moment. If you're a guest with us, if you're new here, um, thank you for joining us. Um, really, we're, we're honored that you um, share this time with us. We, we have a worship response card in our bullet, and we would love for you to fill out. If you have things that you want to pray about, just put them on there. Our leadership team prays over those things every week. We have uh, collection boxes by the door. You can just drop those response cards in there. We would love to hear from you. If you're a guest with us, we have a gift for you at our connection point. All you need to do is visit there. But let me pray for us for now. We'll go into a time of reflection. We'll share communion in a moment. Father God, we thank you that um, you are a good and gracious God, that even though our shame stems from our rebellion against you, our shame stems from the fact that we have rejected your love, you never stopped loving us. And You loved us and demonstrated that love by sending Christ to bear our shame, to die our death, to endure our rejection, to be crushed under our condemnation, that when that righteous judgment was completely satisfied and He rose again from the dead, we might be forgiven and we might have new life. Lord, I pray that the echo of that call, that call of grace, would just speak to my friend's hearts as it speaks to mine. Let us sense your love, your presence, your nearness. Give us the courage to step out of our shame. Give us the humility to walk away from the prideful things we've built behind which we try to hide and let us instead simply come in joy and gratitude to the table of grace.